Presta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, back for another hour talking about the things that matter most. And this hour, got two exceptional guests with us. Uh, Stephen Nix uh, will be joining us. Uh, he is Senior Director for the Eurasia Program at the International Republic Institute. Uh, it's an organization that works to promote democracy worldwide. He lived in Ukraine for more than three years when he served as outside legal counsel for the Committee on Legal Reform in the Ukrainian Parliament. Uh, he's going to join us to talk about, well, the upcoming funeral for Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. And really, this funeral, is it going to be the trumpet blast that galvanizes opposition to Putin in Russia? And that's, that's the question that's being asked. I mean, will Navalny's death end up rallying support uh, for Putin's opponents? We're gonna, that's the question we're going to ask with him. Also coming up, uh, Jonathan Feldstein, an observant uh, Orthodox Jew who was born and educated in the United States, but now lives in southern Israel. He's going to join us uh, to talk about what he saw uh, in the October 7th attack and what he's seen since. And we're also, of course, going to talk about the work he does to foster relationships between Jews and Christians. So we've got great, great guests coming up uh, in this hour. And uh, before we go there, though, we want to get to the news headlines with Dan McGraw. Thank you, Al, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Wednesday, February 28th. It's the Feast of St. Auguste Chap de Leon. And today's news is brought to you by the Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at avemaria.edu. Pope Francis has revealed his monthly prayer intention for March. Throughout the month, the Pope is inviting others to pray for the martyrs of our day, those who risk their lives for the gospel. Francis says there will always be martyrs among us. He added that he's been told that there are more martyrs today than there were at the beginning of Christianity. The monthly prayer intention in February centered around the terminally ill and their families. The March 5th Super Tuesday primaries could virtually seal a Biden-Trump rematch in November. Former President Trump leads Nikki Haley by a margin of 122 to 24 delegates and potentially could be just 100 delegates away from clinching the Republican nomination. President Biden's biggest challenge in the Democratic primaries is a campaign to vote uncommitted in protest of his support for Israel. A Houston woman is now the oldest person living in the United States. A database that tracks human longevity announced over the weekend that Elizabeth Francis now holds the record at 114 years and 217 days. Francis was born in Louisiana in 1909. She became the nation's oldest person following the death of a 116-year-old California woman earlier this month. Francis calls her long life a blessing from God. And Kellogg's CEO Gary Pilnick says people should eat cereal for dinner to save money on soaring food costs. 
He told CNBC last week that it's much more affordable and helps out when consumers are under pressure. Kellogg's has been pushing cereal for dinner since 2022 when it started a campaign with the tagline, Give Chicken the Night Off. From the Ave Maria Radio.net News Desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Friday, we expect the funeral for Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. And many people speculating as to whether this will serve as a trumpet blast to galvanize uh, opposition uh, to Vladimir Putin. Uh, with me to discuss that and other related matters is Stephen Nix, uh, who, by the way, is headed to Ukraine tomorrow. He's senior director for the Eurasia Program at the International Republic Institute, an organization that works to promote democracy worldwide. He lived in Ukraine for more than three years, where he served as outside legal counsel for the Committee on Legal Reform in the Ukrainian Parliament. And he's written extensively on legal and political reforms in Ukraine and Russia and uh, it's great to have you with me, Stephen. Thank you. It's an honor to be with you. Thank you very much. Uh, let's let's take a look at this upcoming funeral. Is it is, is it expected to be a big event? Well, we certainly hope so. Alexei Navalny has been the guiding light for the democratic forces of Russia and a real inspiration to the world, standing up for human dignity, human rights throughout his life as, as a political organizer, and then for two years as a political prisoner. So we, we hope that this funeral will provide an outlet, a way for Russian people to show their support for this great leader. Yeah. However, given the environment that currently exists in right. Russia, we don't know whether the authorities will allow any mass gatherings of public support. In fact, they're already taking steps to warn uh, federal workers, to warn university students not to participate in any public rallies. Not naming Navalny, but trying to uh, reduce the number of people who might show up. Yeah. It was reported, and I don't know how common this was, but it was reported that uh, mourners uh, were actually taken away um, and that uh, the government there tapped, tried to keep away even public mourning uh, for Navalny. That's correct. Uh, people were merely trying to place flowers on a very impromptu memorial in Moscow. And for that, they were dragged away and some were detained. But it gives you some sense of the repressive nature of the Putin regime, where absolutely no difference of opinion, no freedom of expression is allowed. And especially now when Putin is involved in a, a losing war in Ukraine, uh, he wants desperately uh, to make sure that there's no public expression of support uh, uh, for Ukraine and against the war, and certainly no public events in advance of Russia's presidential election, which will take place on March 17th. Putin will stand again for re-election in an election that's a sham. It's not a real election. <laughs> What did he win by last time? Do you do you know off the top of your head? It, it, it was over seventy percent. Uh, we estimate that it will be a similar figure this year. Yeah. Uh, but again, Russia has complete control over its electoral results because 
in addition to the traditional paper ballots, Russia is now starting to utilize uh, electronic voting, uh, which they completely control and dominate. So in essence, the election authorities can generate whatever result they wish to in these sham elections. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's difficult to see how. I mean, that Putin seems to be committed to not leaving any space uh, for public opposition. Uh, he doesn't seem to recognize that uh, it could be a virtue of his country that it had room for uh, public, you know, opposition. Uh, That's abs- absolutely correct. I can tell you that. I've been working with the the Russian Democratic Forces for over 20 years. And every one of the people that I've worked with at the highest levels fall into three categories. They're either in prison, they are in exile, or they are dead. And now Navalny is in that third category. But again, this is testimony to really the murderous, repressive uh, regime uh, that is in power now in the form of Vladimir Putin. Uh, is is Putin personally the wealthiest man in the world? Well, I don't know whether he's the wealthiest, but he's certainly very wealthy. And this was a big part of Navalny's work. The Navalny Foundation served to expose the unjust enrichment and the immense corruption of Putin and his gang, who have all enriched themselves at the expense of the Russian state and the Russian people. Uh, They are fabulously wealthy, Putin and his inner circle. And Navalny was able to uncover a lot of this unjust enrichment and wealth and put it on the Internet, which was very embarrassing for the authorities and the Kremlin. Since that time, since the war in Ukraine started, Navalny, in addition to the anti-corruption efforts, started an anti-war effort. So the Navalny Foundation broadcasts into uh, the country because, by and large, Uh, The prominent people in his organization have all been forced to leave. But they're producing and transmitting in-country to Russian citizens a very prominent anti-war message against the war in Ukraine. Now, tell me your assessment. Russia is a powerful country. They've got a a deep bench, you might say. Uh, Can Ukraine win? Absolutely, Ukraine can win and they will win. Uh, as your listeners probably know, there is a huge supplemental funding package before our uh, legislative branch, a $61 billion supplemental that mm-hmm. will provide Ukraine military, humanitarian, and financial assistance. It was adopted by the Senate. It's now with the House. So now we're all pushing very hard to get a vote on this bill because uh, in my time on the Hill, and I've spent a lot of time in Congress recently, the votes are there. There's bipartisan support sufficient to adopt this supplemental. Now it's up to Speaker Johnson to put this bill to a vote in on the House side. Yeah, yeah. He, he seems reluctant to do that, doesn't he? Well, it, it hasn't happened yet, and we hope that he will see that this is not just in Ukraine's interest. This is in America's interest. It's in Europe's interest to defeat Russia. Uh, and And again, a lot of people ask about this assistance. Why are we sending all this money to Ukraine? We're not sending this money to Ukraine. We are drawing from existing military supplies in the U.S. and sending those to Ukraine and then upgrading those stores with new weapons, upgraded weapons. So 
not only are we uh, helping Ukraine, we are upgrading the U.S. arms system, and we are generating jobs, uh, promoting the U.S. economy. 65% of the funding that's going to be allotted is going to remain in the United States. So this is not charity for Ukraine. This is helping the U.S. economy and helping the U.S. military capability. You hear the, you hear the argument that Putin has a legitimate fear of NATO uh, sitting on his doorstep, and he's afraid Ukraine will become a member of NATO. He says he was promised that NATO would not expand uh, to his his border. Uh, how legitimate a claim is that? I mean, is it legitimate for a, a great nation to say, uh, you know, I want to make sure there's a buffer zone between me and, uh, you know, nations that may be hostile to me? Well, that was his that was his declared intention at the outset of the war. That right. this was over NATO, prevent expansion of NATO. Since then, he's come out and basically been honest and truthful about his real intentions, and that is the subjugation and destruction of Ukraine. He wants to occupy Ukraine, control Ukraine, and destroy its culture and absorb his uh, the Ukrainian people into Russia. That's his real aim, and he has said that. He has stated that. His cronies have stated that. They are intent on eliminating Ukraine as a sovereign state. So he has to argue then that uh, Poland, for instance, uh, lost its borders, but Poland was held together because it had an authentic culture, um, Catholic culture in particular, uh, that enabled them to retain their uh, ethnic identity and eventually recover a national identity. Is he claiming that Ukraine doesn't have any such uh, ethnic, you know, legitimate ethnic identity, and therefore, yeah. okay, yeah. absolutely, sir. He has gone on the record and state that Ukraine never really existed as a separate state; right. that it was always part of Russia. But these are all lies. This is all misinformation. Kiev was a great state in the 14th and 15th century, a huge empire when Moscow at the time was a muddy village. Uh, it was the Ukrainian state that had prominence until the 15th century when it was uh, overrun and defeated and ravaged by, by, uh, uh, by the Mongol horde. Uh, and, and Christianity was also uh, part of this destruction. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, is, it has been a Christian country. Christianity in the Slavic world originated in Kiev, Ukraine, yeah. with the mass baptism uh, of Ukrainians that, that entered the Christian faith. So Putin is trying to rewrite history here and say that Ukraine never really existed as a separate state, that Ukrainians are not a separate people, that they are actually Russians, and it's complete nonsense and misinformation. You know, they, when we see this kind of repression in a country, we always think we see something in China, we see repression too. And it's hard to know where you can put the wedge uh, to make space. What do you suggest? What could be done to help make space for uh, Putin opposition? Well, first of all, we think, we assess that victory in Ukraine, victory in this war over Russia, will lead to a political transition in Russia. Maybe not right away, but eventually. If Putin were to lose this war against Ukraine, 
Uh, I don't see the Russian people tolerating him as a leader. He will look weak. Others will start to challenge him. They will not be afraid of him anymore. So we, we are all looking for victory in Ukraine to lead to a transition, not only in Russia, but in Belarus, which suffers also from authoritarian regime and power there. So we're all pinning our hopes on a Ukrainian victory and all hoping and praying that Congress will pass this badly needed uh, assistance package so that Ukraine can win this war. Okay. So Ukraine wins this war. It not only has the benefit of Ukrainian people having a clear nation um, and sustaining their culture, but it has the added benefit of discrediting Putin in the eyes of the Russian people, weakening his, uh, weakening, weakening his, quote, moral legitimacy. Yes, that's true. And again, if we don't, if we, the collective West, I mean Europe and the United States, do not stop Putin in Ukraine, he will continue. And the next step is to attack the neighboring countries who are all part of NATO. They are NATO members, Poland and the Baltic countries. And once that happens, then the United States is going to be drawn into a war by Article 5 of the NATO Treaty. Uh, So right now, the U.S. is helping Ukraine. Ukraine can win this war without an American soldier being on the ground. We will not lose a single American life. All we have to do is give Ukraine militarily what it needs to defeat Russia, and they will do so. Stephen, thanks so much. I know you're going to Ukraine tomorrow, and I wish you the best. Hope we can talk with you in the future. Thank you, sir. I'd be happy to come back and visit with you. Stephen Nix is Senior Director for the Eurasia Program at the International International Republic Institute organization that works to promote democracy worldwide. I'm Al Cresta. The Catholic Church teaches that Jesus Christ is literally and wholly present, body and blood, soul and divinity, under the appearances of bread and wine. St. John the Apostle records the John chapter 6 Bread of Life discourse in which Jesus states that his flesh is true food and his blood true drink. Who better to understand John's writings and subsequent teachings than a disciple and student of John, St. Ignatius of Antioch? In his letter to the Smyrnians in 110 AD, Ignatius writes, I have no taste for corruptible food nor for the pleasures of this life. I desire the bread of God, which is the flesh of Jesus Christ. And for drink, I desire His blood, which is love incorruptible. The Catholic Church absolutely follows St. John and St. Ignatius in taking Jesus at His word. Examining the truths of the Catholic faith, this is faithforensics.org. What are some of the common temptations against prayer? The Catechism claims that the most common yet hidden temptation is lack of faith, which is expressed not so much in a declaration of disbelief as our actual preferences. For instance, when we begin to pray, a thousand labors or cares vie for priority. This is a moment of truth for our heart. What is our heart's true love? Do we call on the Lord just as a last resort, or do we presumptuously call on him as an ally? In each case, the Catechism says, we have not acquired the disposition of the humble heart, which remembers the Lord's words, apart from me, you can do nothing. A presumptuous heart may experience the temptation of assidia, defined as spiritual depression due to lax ascetical practice, decreasing vigilance, and carelessness of heart. 
As Jesus chastised his sleeping apostles in Gethsemane, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Ave Maria Radio invites you to feast on the joy of fasting this Lenten season and all year long. Fast from idle gossip. Feast on purposeful silence. Fast from words that pollute. Feast on words that purify. Fast from discontent. Feast on gratitude. Fasting is a part of true Christian life. It liberates us from this world as we grow closer to Christ. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Jonathan Feldstein, was born and educated in the United States, emigrated to Israel in 2004. He's married, father of six, and the founder and president of the Genesis 123 Foundation. Throughout his life and career, he's been blessed by the calling to fellowship with Christians, to serve as a bridge between Jews and Christians, and to help connect Christians to Israel in a meaningful way. You can follow his work at genesis123.co, and we'll have that linked for you at our site as well. Well, Jonathan, great to have you here. Thanks. It's a delight. Thank you for having me, Al. Um, Briefly, explain uh, to our listeners the different brands of Jews. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, but roughly. Well, the, the brands, denominations. There, I'm a modern Orthodox Jew. It's radio, so people can't see. I'm wearing a knit skull cap in Hebrew called a kippah. It's blue, not black. Okay. And that typically uh, is a clue that my my uniform I play on the more modern uh, team, but traditional, very traditional, yeah. following biblical laws. Um, people will know from movies and other culture. Ultra Orthodox Jews who who typically will dress more in black and white and have what's called payout the side curls, okay, uh, and and often more long black coats and big black hats, and that's a much more. Um, uh, I don't want to be judgmental. Strident or or narrow view, okay. less in, less involved 
in the in with more, more separatist more separatists circling the wagons preserving what they do less integration with um with modernity with yeah. modern life um here i'm holding my my cell phone my my smartphone typically in a in an ultra orthodox community you won't see a smartphone like that you'll see an old fashioned flip phone because okay. they try to avoid the unnecessary uh, engagement with internet and things that are outside of the um outside of the the world okay and then it, a much more recent uh, adaptation, if you will, is the is the from from the late nineteenth century is the sort of mo- modernization of Judaism in what became Reform Judaism. This is Stephen Wise. Yeah, yeah. right. Okay. And that was a, a sort of a German, uh, early German brand. Stephen Wise became very big here in America, um, much less religiously or doctrinally, more, more culturally and. Um, yeah, culturally oriented, okay. but less less phys- uh, r- religiously observant. And in the middle is conservative Judaism, which is really a, 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 an adaptation here in America that got very popular in the 1950s, kind of trying to be the hybrid between orthodoxy and the ultra-modern without the de- complete dispersal of, of Jewish tradition, but also, okay. uh, w- but also clinging to... Things in the modern world. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Sure. Um, you, you you were born educated in the U.S. You immigrated to or emigrated to Israel in two thousand and four. Why? Well, my father was born in Israel. My father okay. in nineteen thirty seven, Jews in Israel were called Palestinians. Before there was an Arab ethnicity called Palestinian, and my father was one of them. His parents were able to flee Poland. In the 1930s, earlier, and and unfortunately, most of their families were were slaughtered. Um, from day one, my father gave me a name that he could never pronounce. He always called me Jonathan. <laughs> and whether he was telling me to go rake leaves in my Princeton, New Jersey home, or which had a lot of oak trees, or uh, or go do my homework, or whatever it was, there was always an Israeli inflection in in my Jewish identity. And when I first went to Israel, I was a teenager, and I was overwhelmed at how connected I felt. I don't know how I had this understanding at the Mm -hmm. time that it was a better place to raise children because I was a child myself. I had never dated anybody, so I wasn't even thinking of having children. But I wanted to live there, and then I think about it biblically. It's the only land in the world that God deeded to anybody. So I'm an inheritor of that through Abraham yeah. and Isaac and Jacob, and how could I not want to? Yeah. It's such a great place for for Jews to live and and come having come back to. Um, and thank it, it took a long time. I met my wife 33 years ago next month, and actually this month. Oh my goodness! Today, <laughs> today, <laughs> today was when we met. She doesn't have to call her uh, leap year. Blame no, the leap year. <laughs> jet lag and. Uh, yeah, how wild. So 33 years ago today we met, and she also had the same desire to live in Israel. Yeah. It took a lot longer for us to go. This summer will be 20 years, but life isn't perfect there for sure. Right. But it's the best place to be living as Jews. Yeah. And my children, what's wonderful, Al, is my children today who are now uh, – my 18-year-old was born there, but my five imports were 3 to 11. They all thank us. Isn't that something? Yes. That's beautiful. Children don't thank their parents very often for things, and <laughs> mine thank me for that very big thing. Um, my wife and I, uh, she's been there a few times. Okay. Uh, my most vivid memory 
of being there about uh, three or four years ago okay. was we were there for Yom Kippur. Oh, my. And I'd never seen such um, uniform um, obedience <laughs> to a ob- uh, religious observation, yes. as we saw yes. that day, it was, it was, bec- it was beckoning. It was, it, it, there was an implicit call. How, how uh, interesting! What yeah. a great observation. Yeah, it was, it was great. Um, and we, sm- Sally and I, still talk about. It. Okay. Yeah, that's it's mem- very memorable. You were there for October, uh, the October massacre. Yeah. Where were you? At home. And um, where's that? I live in a town called Efrat, which is in the Judean Mountains, about uh, 15 kilometers south of central Jerusalem. In between us is Bethlehem. And in my old house, we heard, we could see and hear the church bells of Bethlehem and the mosques from across the valley. We moved to a different neighborhood. And uh, yeah, it was, a, it, w- it was supposed to have been a regular Shabbat. Um, we walked, we went to my daughter and son-in-law. They, they, they have no respect. No, and that's important with Ramadan coming up because yeah. we're getting pushed in Israel to not have combat during Ramadan, but they don't respect their own holidays, right. much less our own, ours. Um, no, it was a, it was early Saturday. I'll tell you, I don't get to speak about it very often, but you know that when you lie in bed sometimes and it's between being awake and asleep, you're not really dreaming, but you're not really conscious. Right. And you, you're aware of things. So I wasn't aware of this until afterward, but I heard booms. I was lying in bed. It was 8.30. I had overslept. I would, we were out very late the night before. I was supposed to go to synagogue that morning. I heard booms in the distance, and it made no sense to me. And I thought I was tank fire, which made no sense because there are no tanks where we live <laughs> in the Judean mountains. Uh, there have been battles there, biblical battles and, and modern battles, and it made no sense. And then at about 9 o'clock in the morning, the air raid siren on the school just next to us sounded. And wow, it's the, probably the loudest thing I've ever heard. One of the most unnerving thing I've ever yeah. heard. We've had rockets land near us before. We're about 40 miles north and east of the Gaza Strip. It's not out of the question that these things happen, but it's not common at all. And that was the first of four times that day that we were sent downstairs to our bomb shelter. That's common. In, in the Midwest, you have storm shelters for tornadoes. Yeah. In, in Israel, you have bomb shelters. How common are bomb shelters? In the last... 25, 30 years, every new construction, every personal home has a safe room that's built as a bomb shelter. So that's my oldest son's room, my my oldest son, who was a paratrooper, who later that day was called up to to go into, into the army, spending four months in the army, two of which were in combat in Gaza. Um, and that's where we started to know. Since we're Orthodox Jews, our phones weren't on, TV wasn't on. There's a principle in Judaism that you throw away almost every single biblical uh, rule, commandment, mitzvah, um, to save a life. We didn't perceive that our lives were in danger, so we didn't turn on the TVs or the phones to find out what was going on. And at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, my son came home. He is... His wife's family are friends of ours. They live in our neighborhood. He said, I've been called up. It's hard to talk about. Um, He had 10 minutes to get into his uniform and get all his gear. And he, I remember, never forget it, standing on the, we were on the seventh floor, standing on the balcony, watching him get into this little black car and drive off. And we didn't know what was going, we didn't know how bad it was. But it's, it's an unnerving thing to watch your son 
not drive off to be deployed to an airport to fly overseas to go into some country that you may never have heard of against an enemy that you have no connection to, but to be to going to the front line, which is in our backyard. Yeah. Uh, he's safe? Thank God. He, yeah. he was discharged uh, around three, four weeks ago. He's now properly living with my daughter-in-law, um, cramming one month, cramming a whole semester into one month so he won't um, catch up. But I know it's affected his soul. Yeah. I know that. There's no question. Um, he saw and did things that I would never have wished for my son. Yeah. I, I think what shocked the world was the brutality. Yes. I mean, it's not as though we're unfamiliar with war. Correct. Um, in the United States, we've seen lots of brutality from Vietnam War forward. Yes. You know? But it was it was the brazenness of the massacre, the the pride shown yes. in brutalizing other human beings. What in the world do you make of a neighbor like that? <laughs> that that unfortunately they're worshiping a false god. Yeah. That they that hate is the whereas we worship the creator and and prayer is is his currency. Um hate and slaughter and we know this. I I studied a little bit of multi uh, interreligious things at Emory in the eighties, and okay. and Islam unfortunately calls for everyone who needs to convert or die by the sword. Yeah, yeah. and and we're we're uh, we're you're the we're the Saturday people, you're the Sunday people, right. and they're not much more fond of you than they are of us. And and what it's told me, and it it's it's burst my bubble because I really did believe in coexistence, and I pray for it. But it's very hard to imagine now, anyway, because as the brutality, the inhumanity of the of the slaughter, and what people, what 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 was done to living and dead people, and ch- children, children elderly. being beheaded, and and there's a video I hid away somewhere of a pregnant woman whose abdomen was cut open, and the horrible, inhuman. You can't, we're, we have the same DNA, but it's not human. Yeah. And it, it, it bursts my bubble as to whether we can really actually ever live in peace. Yeah. It's difficult to have a neighbor who isn't, you have disagreements about where to put the fence, <laughs> but this is not a disagreement about where to put the fence. No. This neighbor wants you eliminated. Correct. And and that we're not accustomed no. to that kind of negotiation. No. no. Uh, Jonathan, got to take a break. Yeah. The music's coming up here. My guest is uh, Jonathan Feldstein, uh, an observant Orthodox Jew living in uh, southern Israel. We're talking about the experience of uh, the Ma- Ma- October massacre. We're going to continue. Do you own popular index mutual funds or ETFs? If so, you're automatically owned shares of companies that conflict with your moral beliefs. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. The experienced professional portfolio managers make decisions based on investment fundamentals and pro-life values. You can learn more about Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. 
The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and his gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit streetevangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. I said to the churches one day, what do you think you're going to look like in heaven? Oh, some of them had absolutely magnificent ideas. I didn't think of one of them. So I got desperate because then my turn came. I didn't know what to say. And so in desperation, I said, what do you think I'll wear in heaven? And they all said with one voice, armor. (laughs) EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. Christ is the answer with Father John Ricardo. John, chapter 8, verse 51. Jesus is in a discussion with some of the leaders of the Jews. They're talking about Abraham. Abraham lived 1,500 years before the time of Jesus. So in the course of the discussion, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He says that often in the Gospels. He who keeps my word or believes in me will never die. To which the Jews say, Now we know you have a demon. And they say, Abraham died, as did the prophets. All the patriarchs, the great men and women of the history of Israel. All these people died, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets, who died? Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he was to see my day. He saw it and was glad. To which the Jews say, you are not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Hey, good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Jonathan Feldstein, talking about his experience in Israel. Uh, his Again, this is where he lives in southern Israel, talking about the October 7th massacre. And uh, oh, let, me, let me go to one uh, troubling question that sure. 
keeps coming up, and that is in the pursuit of eliminating Hamas, mm. all the collateral damage. Yes. Okay. Uh, what do you make of that? Unfortunately, there's a lot of collateral damage. Unfortunately, the collateral damage is a direct correlation to how entrenched Hamas was. I know this because I read and follow the Israeli media. I know this because my son spent two months in Gaza and told me the things that he saw and many other people who have been in and out of Gaza. That's the that's the reality. And, and there are very few actual civilian sites in Gaza that – at before October 7th, weren't deeply penetrated by Hamas. Used as cover for their weapons, used as cover for their tunnels, their bunkers, and we're talking about, we know, hospitals, schools, United Nations schools. Sadly, no one's surprised about that anymore, but that's a reality, their own mosques, and that makes them all legitimate targets. Um, I'm very proud of the fact, I know that civilians have been killed, non-combatants, it's hard to identify who are the non-combatants when none of them wear uniforms and they're hiding among the, the civilian population anyway. Mm -hmm. But having said that, I'm not, no, I don't think anyone in Israel is looking for a wholesale slaughter, what the South African government has done, bringing charges of genocide against Israel in the International yeah. Court of Justice is ridiculous. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's an affront to just sanity. But having said that, if you go by the Hamas numbers, 29,000 casualties since October 7th on their side. 9,000 of those must have been Hamas members. So our estimates, the Israeli estimates are 10,000. 10,000, okay. So if, even if you go and just round up, because I've never been good at math, 10,000 out of 30,000, that's one in three. There's never, ever been a, a urban combat in the history of the world where you have that low yeah. ratio. And the ratio assumes, number one, that the 30,000 is accurate. Number two, that 20,000 of the 30,000 are actual non-combatants. And a story, a, a friend reminded me of a story recently of three little boys riding a bike into an area that the IDF had conquered and was a closed zone. And the protocol is to shoot anyone who comes in. And three boys rode their bikes in. Yeah. And because we have humanity, we didn't, right. even though that's the protocol. And, uh, and when the boys left a few minutes later, a man showed up, a terrorist showed up with an RPG. So they're using their, they're using their children, not just as human shields, but as scouts. How, and, and, I, and I don't know the answer to that, Al. Mm -hmm. I, don't know, I don't know what I would do. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, it, it's, it's troubling. Uh, but I have heard that in terms of... Uh, Studies done uh, of civilian uh, casualties um, versus combat casualties uh, in urban warfare that the ratio uh, does is is about a good as good as you can get. Yeah, yeah. Albeit that it's war, and albeit that it's there war. are casualties, yeah. Israel should be celebrated yeah. for for really deliberately striking the terrorists, going out of the way to move civilians who are non-combatants out of harm's way, holding off right now and entering the last stronghold of, uh, of, the, of the terrorists in southern Gaza because we need to move a million civilians out of, out of that city. Yeah. Um, I, I wish we didn't have the war. What happens in the future? Well... I wrote an article this week published in the Washington Times saying that I want the, the, re the reconstruction of Gaza, which needs to be vast, 
really from the under the ground up, and I say that tongue not tongue in cheek, but yeah. literally. Yeah, because you, I, you got those all those uh, the tunnels network, there. They yeah. could have had a great subway and transportation system. I would like to see an army of two hundred thousand Christians come in for, to to manage the reconstruction, to show them a little bit about actual faith. To have them have a connection with the God of Abraham, yeah. Because uh, when they have a connection with the God of Abraham, the God of Israel, they'll also begin to understand the they, they need to be praising and celebrating the people of Israel, and they'll understand the significance of the state of Israel. Yeah. Um, I don't see a geopolitical solution. I don't see a two-state solution. I don't see entrusting any any Arab country, even our allies, yeah, yeah, with with taking responsibility. Yeah. Uh, and what's dot uh, Menachem Begin the Camp David Accords yeah. was that a bright moment? It was a great moment. Okay, and then it was a great moment, very optimistic. And then and then two years later, Sadat was assassinated by yeah. Islamic extremists backed by Iran. Yeah, I interviewed his wife twice. Did you How about that? Amazing, yeah. amazing. Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's troubling. Yes, I, I remember. I remember all the celebration. <clears throat> Uh, the Camp David Accords, and it, we've turned the corner. We've turned the corner. And my father, my father, kept me home from school that day to watch the <laughs> signing of the peace agreement. It was that significant. I'm tempted to keep going, but I really want to talk about the work that you're okay. doing with Genesis one, two, three. What is that? So, in 2017, after working in nonprofit for a number of uh, number of decades already, uh, building bridges with Christians, I really felt that I wasn't doing what God wanted me to do in terms of genuinely building bridges. I, I, I became part of a cycle of what I term the objectification of Christians as a faith-based ATM, where you put in a card, <laughs> you punch in four numbers, and you take out some cash, and that's and, and without even saying thank you. And that wasn't good enough for me. And so I established a Genesis One Two Three Foundation. We say to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful. And anyone's invited to go to the website Genesis One Two Three dot co to learn about what we do and the kinds of programs because we're trying to do things that are different. For instance, the first Christian program around the Jerusalem Marathon is called Run for Zion. That's our program. I started that in two thousand eighteen. Our first. Pilot was 2019. It was a great success. Ah, Runforzion.com, yeah. and hopefully we have a war going on, so many people aren't coming next week. But by 2025, we're hoping that we'll have a nice big group again, uh, which which will be fabulous. I do. I'm the only Orthodox Jew with a weekly podcast called the Inspiration from Zion podcast on the Charisma Podcast Network. So you have 300 evangelical podcast hosts and me, <laughs> and you, which is great fun. And you're looking at the prom promo for the book that we just published yeah, beautiful. called Israel the Miracle, um, which, by the way, I love to give your listeners, anyone who's listening, uh, the, the publisher hates when I do this, but um, a discount if they go to IsraelTheMiracle.com, okay. enter the uh, uh, coupon code JONATHAN10, uh, check out and save 10%. But it's a compilation of essays by uh, 75 essays by Christian leaders all over the world, every continent except Antarctica, yeah. and writing about why Israel is significant. Now, it came off the press two weeks before the war. We weren't planning on having a war. But, the, but this makes the book that much more significant because the miracles that are represented in the restoration of Jewish sovereignty in the state of Israel are quite significant. And you've got 75 different voices from people in their 90s, 
Pat Robertson is one of them. He died in the yeah. process of printing. But we have probably his, what people are calling his last testament on Israel to people in their 20s, multiple ethnicities, as I said, geog- geographically uh, diverse, denominationally yeah, so diverse. Yeah, so Albedee King there. So. Yeah, she's yeah. wonderful. And and this is just our way to get to get this stunning book in the homes of mostly Christian families, but I want Jews to, to read it because yeah. I want Jews to understand what's the sincerity of the love and support for Israel. So, what is the fundamental, uh, is the identity of Jesus the fundamental um, issue between us? Probably. Yeah. I mean, I think so. Uh, we could probably we could probably talk about the interpretation of scripture, yeah. Um, but that also often boils down to whether we're identifying Jesus being prophesied in in Isaiah fifty three, right, yeah, or, right. Or, or anywhere. Sure. Um, I, I, but I think ultimately that's the bottom line. We're still worshiping the Creator, and we're the only oh, yeah. people who do. And uh, and and this and and correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. Here. But in the experience of the tabernacle and the temple, there is a, a, a dwelling uh, with God's people. God yes. is with his people in some real way. And, of course, uh, Christians understand Jesus as that dwelling yes. with God's people, too. Yes. Uh, tabernacling among us, I think, in John one fourteen says. Um, is, there, is there room to move on this question of God's dwelling with his people. Does that enable us to get closer? Um, I, th- I think for sure it does. Uh, there's no question. It's funny you say that. In my introduction in the book, I'm actually using scripture from, from uh, I can't, uh, um, Exodus, yeah. um, where, the, where, where the people of Israel brought all of the, all of the materials for building the tabernacle right. to build this sanctuary. And they yeah. came at it with love and gave so much stuff that the rabbinic uh, teaching is that, they, that Moses even had to tell them to stop. Yeah. You're bringing too much yeah. stuff. But it was all used to build this holy, sacred place. And that's what I look at this book. It's, it's that space. And all of the authors and all of the photographers and all of the artists gave graciously. Yeah. It was really amazing. But yeah, we, this is why it's important to have dialogue. And, e- and dialogue among friends, even about the things that we disagree about. Sure, sure. And I don't have a problem with that. I'm, I'm very sensitive as an Orth- Orthodox Jew to tell a Christian, no, I don't need Jesus. Because I have, I'm a member of the original covenant, and my salvation, my path, is different than a Gentile, and, and a Christian specifically. Yeah. And we get into conversations. Yeah, the relationship between the covenants, I know, is a, can be a, an area of friction. Uh, but It's friction it, if we let it be. I don't want it to be offensive. I don't want it to be uncomfortable. Right. But we can agree on just about everything else. And disagree on big stuff. Some people toy around. Okay, when the Messiah comes, we'll ask him, is it his first time or second time? (laughs) I know that doesn't sit well with a lot of Christians because they want my salvation now. And I know that comes from love. But I also explain why I have my unique salvation. It's not a word we use as Jews, but I like the dialogue. What what word uh, do you use to describe your, quote, union with God. Is that a phrase that works? 
in Jewish well, spirituality. Well, our covenant, a covenant, covenant. With, our covenant with God, and yes. that's un, that goes back to Abraham. It's never been broken, and it's an indiv- it, it, It's funny as Jesus is a personal Messiah. Yeah. Um, so our covenant is unique too. As a as a Jewish man, I have my responsibilities to God and to all of God's creation, and. And how I fulfill that ultimately is how I believe God is judging me. And and therefore, at least if I'm doing it well, you mentioned being in Israel on Yom Kippur. If I'm doing it well, if I'm doing it modestly, at least once a year I'm standing before God with full sincerity, acknowledging my shortcomings and even sins. I'm not a perfect person. Yeah. I'm, I'm far from a perfect person. And every year there's a new list of them. But God knows that I'm really trying to be sincere, and I and I celebrate. I love Him, I love my relationship with God, how that structures my life and my family, and everything that I do. And I and I hope that God also smiles and winks once in a while and says, "Hey, Jonathan, you know, nice job with that Genesis one, two, three thing." <laughs> <laughs> well, what is the is there what is the biggest barrier that you come across in trying to build bridges? between Jews and Christians. So Jews well, carry... You, guess what? We're out of time. Welcome I back. I can't believe I, mi- <laughs> I, I missed, the, missed the cue again. Darn it. I'm so sorry. Next time, Al. But next time, we'll talk. It's a cliffhanger. Talk. Can we give you a call in Israel, too? For sure. All right, we'll do that. Jonathan, thanks so much. It's a delight. Sixty seconds with Father Mitch Pacwa. This communion with Jesus and with one another, that being united to Him and abiding in Him, that is the indispensable condition for bearing fruit. That's why our Lord says, back in John fifteen verse five, "Apart from Me, you can do nothing." If you're not united to Christ, you're not going to do anything for Him. So communion with Jesus, our Savior. Focusing on Him and getting to know Him and be known by Him. That is what makes it possible for us to bear fruit as Christians. And communion with others is the most magnificent fruit that the branches can give. That's one of the things that He's looking for from us. That we have a communion with one another. That we have a love and a concern. Does it mean we agree with one another? Not necessarily. The people you know and trust are on EWTN. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. So many people call themselves Christian, call themselves Catholic, call themselves Evangelical, whatever, and they're nothing more than members of the Church of what's happening now, as Slip Wilson used to say. You want direction, you want guidance, go to the source. Go to Jesus, go to Scripture, go to the Church teachings. Not to Whoopi Goldberg, not to, and we pray for her, but Nancy Pelosi's version of Catholicism or Joe Biden's version of Catholicism or any other politician that holds fast to their quote-unquote Catholic faith, yet consistently, consistently and blatantly not just speaks against the church, but acts against the church. We need to pray for these people, and we need to encourage bishops to stand up for the truth and not be afraid. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio.
Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Thanks for being with me. And let me remind you again that uh, you can follow up on my conversation with Jonathan, and we'll have all the uh, linkage there. His website is genesis123.co, and there's also the book, uh, Israel the Miracle, which contains testimonies from 75 Christian leaders uh, about their encounter with the land and with the people God loves. And so uh, you can actually get a 10% discount there if you enter uh, Jonathan 10. So just, uh, again, genesis123.co. And... uh, Let me remind you, uh, what we covered in the first hour, we'll have follow-up information on all of our topics there, uh, conversation with Carter Sneed on bioethics, and uh, earlier conversation with Stephen Nix about Alexei Navalny's death. Thanks for being with me. I'm Al Cresta. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio, and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.